What's up? I'm Tyler. And I'm Dakota. And this is the Bourbon and Business Podcast. Where we interview successful businessmen and women to let you in on why success doesn't have a single formula to follow. We also have a little bourbon tasting along the way, because why not? Why not? Why not? So guys, please enjoy this episode and let us know your thoughts at Bourbon and Business Podcast on Instagram. Coming to you from the Bourbon and Business Studio here in the Office Evolution Plaza in Flowood, Mississippi. I'm Tyler. And I'm Dakota. And this is the Bourbon and Business Podcast. How are you doing today, Dakota? I'm doing great, Tyler. How are you? I'm doing great. Always happy when we film an episode. I know it. Or record. Yeah, whatever you want to call it, film or record. Uh, we have our special guest with us today, Kelly Williams. Yes. From Kelly's Green, and she'll tell us a little bit more about that later, but happy to have you today. Thank you so much. I'm super pumped to be here. Well, Dakota, what do we have today? Today, Adam has kindly brought us a bottle of Rebel from the Lux Road Distilleries. It's a Kentucky straight bourbon whiskey, 80 proof, uh, from, like I said, the Lux Road Distillers in Bardstown, Kentucky. And apparently, according to Rebel, this is the original recipe since 1849. Wow. Apparently, they haven't changed it because it was just that good. Um, I think, Adam, you said it was like a $15, $20 bottle. So, Tyler, what's what's the off-the-cuff opinion there? It's pretty good. Smooth. Okay. Um, I, I have to rate it probably at right at 8.2. 8.2. So, good whiskey. Yeah. Um, especially for 15 bucks. Yeah, $15, so. 8.2. Can't beat that. So, uh, Adam, thank you so much again for bringing that on. And uh, with that, we'll get back to the podcast. Well, Kelly, um, we usually start these off. Just tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, your, I guess, you start with your legal career, but you know what drove you to go into the legal profession, and tell sure. us a little bit of information about that. Sure. Well, first off, thanks again for having me. I'm super excited to be here. And uh, quick question before we get to me: What's the scale? If that's an eight point two, what's the scale? So we go up to ten. Okay. And All so right. our. Our best rating so far, we've gave a nine, what, nine five? You gave a nine seven. I gave a nine seven, but I think we averaged it to a nine Nine, four, nine five, something something like that. Yeah. Um, And that was Weller on the previous episode Mm -hmm. or a couple episodes back, actually. But yeah, we've had, we've had two or three fall in the nines and, um, I mean, we've had good luck on what we've selected so far. Yeah. And it kind of falls. Anywhere in the uh, price range, you know, it's not just the hundred dollar bottles that are nines and up. Sure, so we've sure. had some that are fifteen, a twenty dollar bottles like you can this. Get like a, a good deal, on some absolutely. Bourbon. And we want to let people know. Awesome. You don't have to spend two hundred, three hundred dollars on a good bottle of bourbon. You okay. can spend twenty five bucks if you want to. I mean, you, you can. Could. Sure, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> just to say, you know, yeah, hey, this I mean, is a three hundred dollar bottle. Yeah, anything to support local too. But uh, <laughs> yeah. at the same time, you don't have to. Right. All right. Well, that sounds awesome. I just, uh, I didn't know what it meant. So I wanted to get clarification on that. But um, yeah, so uh, I am the founder and CEO of Kelly's Green. And we are a fully vertical, uh, vertically integrated medical marijuana company here in Mississippi. Uh, We have a cultivation license, we have a processing license, and we have uh, retail locations as well. Uh, we have a wholesale division as well as a retail division, obviously. And, uh, just a, a a ton of good stuff going on with that, and uh, and 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 I can get to more on that in a minute. Um, you asked a little bit about my legal career, sort of where I started and how I got on this journey. 
So uh, I'm a lawyer by profession. And um, first off, I'm a born and raised Mississippian. I've been here my whole life. Um, I have three kids. I had just had my first grandbaby. Congrats. Um, Congratulations. Thank you. And uh, and I'll tell you, I've educated my children here. They still live here. Um, well, one of them is uh, still lives with me, but the, the other two are adults. And so, but we really are committed um, to Mississippi. We are true Mississippians. So I uh, practiced law. And I did a, I, I did a lot of litigation, but in I also had a robust uh, appellate practice. And um, one of the one of the things that I really committed to in my career was parent defense. And the way that came about was uh, at one point, very quickly. I won't, I won't bore everybody like watching paint dry. See everybody's eyes like start to glaze over when I talk <laughs> about law. But uh, so the federal government came in here in Mississippi at one point and said, "Hey, due process has eroded when it comes to youth courts and parents' rights as well as children's rights." And so they said, "We we need for you, the state of Mississippi, to set up a task force and to address these issues." And so. The state of Mississippi set up a task force. The Supreme Court set up a task force, and I was part of that task force. And so in my participation in that, I represented parents who were at risk of losing custody of their children specifically to the government. Now, I've done plenty of private custody uh, work as well, but that was a very specific thing. Um, you know, you have constitutional implications that come into play when you talk about the government interfering in someone's lives as opposed to just a, a private custody matter, which are messy by themselves. Obviously, everybody knows. Yeah. During my time doing that, what I realized was happening was that people, parents, were losing custody of their children due to marijuana use. So whether it was a failed drug test for marijuana or whether it was an admission to using marijuana, what we found specifically was, oh my gosh, this is a big problem. And initially I did not think it was real. Like, you know, you, you, I would read a case file or I would have contact with a client and they would tell me a story and I thought, you've got to be leaving out something big here because there's no way that that's happening. <laughs> not, not like you're telling me it's happening. Well, in reality, um, it was happening. Uh, we had children that had been removed from parents for nothing more than a failed drug test for marijuana for years. And I'm talking about children had been out of the home for years. Now, some of them were, were shorter periods of, of time, but so we began fixing that. And and again, we're not talking about abuse or neglect. We're talking about cases where there was no evidence of abuse or neglect. There was nothing but a failed drug test for marijuana and no other drug or an admission to using marijuana. These children were well cared for in every sense of the word. Food in the home, proper shelter, proper parental child bonding, uh, spiritual uh, needs met, educational needs met, medical needs met. All of their needs being met, but for this um, this this uh, marijuana test, and so I just I have kids, like I just said, I have three kids, and so I would go home to my kids and be like, there are kids that are at not at home tonight in a stranger's home, albeit maybe a great stranger, maybe a, a great foster home, but that's not okay because we know that removing children from their homes does irreparable damage, and I don't care if it's for good or bad. So anyway, that began my journey in 2016. I drafted some legislation. That says that in some, you a judge cannot use a uh, failed drug test for marijuana or an admission to using marijuana as the sole basis to find probable cause for neglect and and therefore remove a child. Got that passed in 2017. It was huge. I honestly, um, really didn't. You know, I don't know. I'm, I'm I'm still. I look back on it now and I'm still surprised. 
that we got that passed. And so, what did that do to the caseload that you were talking about before? Uh, so actually, it did. It did it, that law in with the actual representation that we provided in courts because we did go actually in courts and actually litigate these cases. Um, we reduced the foster care population in Hines County by thirty. Excuse me, by thirty three percent, which is huge. It is huge. Wow. Um, and we did that in uh, about a year and a half, which goes to show you just sort of how how widespread that practice was. Or, or how how voluminous it was causing the the foster care numbers to be. Um, so then, and and, in t- and on top of that, you know, I think people, at least people that I've encountered, have people in the cannabis industry seem to have a a connection to cannabis. I know that we do. We have our own personal. Our family has our own personal connection to cannabis. It's not just about making money. I mean, it's obviously about making money. There's no part of that because we have investors that we have a fiduciary duty to do to to return that investment, which is just basic business, right? You know. But in addition to that, I think what makes us so different is that we have a connection to cannabis. One of the reasons that I, I, that I went down this journey, in addition to my experience uh, practicing law, we have a family member. We have a, a niece who was diagnosed with Ewing sarcoma when she was 13, and she battled that like a true warrior, and she beat cancer. For three years, she battled that. It was huge. I, you know, I don't know that I had ever seen suffering like that. Mm. And she battled that, and she won it. And then my father passed away in 2018 um, of Alzheimer's. And so watching those two journeys were very different journeys, but still really had a deep impact on, on me and us as a family about why we wanted to do this and what it meant to us. And, uh, and really, it's about mitigating suffering. And so that's sort of what got us through to this journey that really, you know, brought us to where we are today. So yeah, and 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 we've got so much going on. Like I said, we have uh, we are our production facility is located in Jackson. We have a forty one thousand square foot production facility, and in that particular location, we um, we cultivate. Obviously, we have an indoor cultivation, and uh, and then we also have a processing license, which means in our facility we have an extraction lab where we will um, use an extraction product we're using. So for example, one of the extraction methods we're using is called light hydrocarbons. We're using a mixture of butane and propane to pull out. It's actually called crude oil once you get to that. And then you can further process it or extract it to, to, uh, to get a distillate, which is a pure form. Um, and, uh, and then we'll take those extractions and we'll go to, we have a manufacturing space as well, and we'll create all kinds of products, whether it's gummies or uh, topicals or tinctures or concentrates. Um, so we'll, we'll create all smokable forms, which is flower bud, pre-rolls, and then concentrates and things of that nature. And then, of course, everything that's a non-smokable as well. So we're going to, we're, we're creating everything. And then, of course, we have our own retail line as well. Uh, we'll have our own brands. We'll carry other brands. So we're, we're really doing it all. Yeah, sound, sounds like a lot. Take us through the process of uh, like a crop, like, you know, being here in Mississippi, we're all familiar with, you know, corn and those type things. But what does that look like for, uh, I guess, cannabis? How long does it take to cultivate that plant? And then I guess how many crops a year do you get out of that specific plant? Yeah. So um, so to, to answer your question as far as, um, so so it matters. The first question is, is whether it's indoor or outdoor, because that matters how many turns you're going to get. We don't have 
uh, outdoor grow in Mississippi. And so it's not allowed. It's actually illegal. So we won't even talk about that. But as far as an indoor grow for a company like us, so the cannabis life cycle is about, it, it depends on the strain. It depends on the environmental stressors and it depends on how you're growing it. Um, and it depends on the nutrients and, uh, and all of these things in the environment that you control, like the airflow, the humidity, the lights, um, the temperature, the nutrients, um, all of these things impact the life cycle. But generally speaking, the cannabis plant can grow anywhere from about four months to six months, six months being on the very long end, uh, four months being on the shorter end, unless you get what's called an auto flowering strain. So an auto flowering strain is a strain of cannabis that you don't manipulate the light to make it bud. It automatically buds on its own. And we have, you know, honestly, there, there are probably some good auto-flowering strains out there. We would need our, our genetics person in here to talk to you guys about that specifically. But I think generally speaking, uh, auto-flowering is, is you, you, uh, you don't get a consistent product with it. And so it's, it's, in our opinion, in my opinion, for what it's worth, it's not a great product to try to continue to do, continually do harvest to, to sustain your entire grow. But uh, generally speaking, it's four to six months is the life cycle. And you're going to start with either a seed or a clone. And if, if you guys aren't familiar with cloning, it's cloning is literally, we have a, what's called a mom room. And we have plants that live in that room that are our mother plants. And we cut off those or do clippings off of those and we clone those plants. So you go through when you have a when you have a, a cultivation, you go through what's called a pheno hunt, and you find your your most robust plants, and those become your mom plants. And so you cut off those so that you get your best genetic families going forward, and you sort of weed out. <laughs> pardon the pun. Um, you sort of weed out the the weaker phenotypes, if that makes any sense. And well, then yeah. A little sense. There's a yeah, sorry, <laughs> sorry. It's a little bit over over my head, but I I, I see yeah, where it's you're just going a, with it's it. Just so. a, it's just a way to. Um, it's a very intense uh, process. It, it is. Like. It is just so. a way to find your strongest plants and your right. strongest genetics because you may have. You know, you've, there's tons of strains, and within that one strain, you may have however many plants, right. but not each of those plants. So if you had 50 caramel cream plants, not each of those plants is going to be of the same robust genetics, or I mean, likely, depending on where they came from. You know, obviously, you're, you, you may have, at least in the beginning, once you narrow those pheno hunts down and those strongest plants, that's what you cut from. And you cut from those plants that live in the mom room. They're going to be there for a few months, and then they're going to get tired, and they're and they're and you're going to destroy them. So you cut your clones, and then when your clones get uh, and you sort of incubate them, and um, it's the way we do it for for lack of a better word. And then um, and then you move them to a different. Uh, once they get to a particular point in their life cycle, you move them to a veg room. And uh, for example, in our veg room, we have two microclimates. We have a veg one and a veg two, and each of these climates has a different need. For as it relates to airflow, temperature, humidity, lights, of course, <laughs> and they have different timings too. So depending on where the cannabis plant is in its life cycle determines how much light exposure it gets and how long. So, you know, you never, our mom plants stay in light all the time, 24 hours a day. They never go to sleep. They never have a dark period. You start manipulating that light as they get older. And then once you get to flower, you completely control. I mean, you complete, you control the light for the whole time, but they have dark cycles in flower because that's how you manipulate a plant into budding. And, uh, and so that's essentially the steps in the life cycle. You'll go from the mom room to the bedroom 
room and ultimately to the flower room. And that's when you harvest the plant. And, uh, and from there, it just goes through the, the cycles of, of whatever you're going to do with it. So some of it will be go directly. We'll sell it as flower, like the prettiest, best buds will be sold as flower. And uh, we'll have some of that for pre-rolls. Um, and then the rest of it's going to go into trim to create products like topicals and gummies and vapes and all of these great products. In Mississippi, because I, I would assume most Mississippians are not familiar with the process. What is the process for medical marijuana as far as you going? And I guess you have to get a prescription. And then how you go about after you get the prescription, how does that work? Where do you purchase this at? How does, I guess, explain that process? Sure, sure. Happy to. So, yes. So we are a strictly medicinal uh, market here. And so in order to, um, to go, to be able to go get medical marijuana, you have to get a patient card. And so if you want to get a patient card, you can reach out to your doctor. So right now we've got, I want to say about 230, I think at last count it was 232, but I I could be uh, not recalling that number accurately, but about 230 certifying physicians and nurse practitioners in the state of Mississippi, which is really huge, honestly. So you as a patient would reach out to your physician and say, hey, you know, I want to make an appointment and you go in. Um, you have your appointment, and we've got 21 debilitating conditions that are listed. We also have an avenue for people. So, for example, if you have something that is not listed under the debilitating conditions, but you go to your physician, and your physician says, yeah, I think this would might help. I think we should try this. There is an avenue under the bill that you can go directly to the Department of Health, and a, there's a process that allows you to ask them to add to the debilitating conditions list. So so you've got to have a debilitating condition, and then you get what's called a certification from your doctor. We don't prescribe it because pres- prescriptions are for drugs that are not on Schedule 1. So, right. so it's a certification. So you get your certification from your physician, and you take that. And actually, that gets uploaded to your portal with the Department of Health because the Department of Health is the one who issues the, the patient cards. So in the beginning, people were going, and it's online, it's all online, so it's not like you go to an office. You literally go online to a portal, and you register with that portal. And then once you register, you have an account, and you would upload your documents to your account and fill out your application online and submit it. We had some great um, some great changes in this past legislative session where the legislature made it where the doctor can now complete the application for you. So let's say I want to go get my card. I go to my doctor and my doctor says, yes, you have a de- I've diagnosed you with a debilitating condition and I'm going to certify you for medical marijuana. I'm going to take, and, and now that doctor is going to take that information and upload it directly to an account for me on the patient portal online. So then I'm just going to wait until I get my response from the Department of Health. The Department of Health used to have 30 days to respond to whether to a complete application to uh, grant it or deny it. And now the legislature changed that. They only have 10 days. So I'm going to wait and I'm going to see if I get my card. And when I get my card, I'm going to take that card to a dispensary of my choosing if it's me, I'm going to Kelly's Green. And so, but you could take it to a dispensary of your choosing. How many dispensaries yeah. are there in Mississippi? So right now, well, as far as what's licensed, mm-hmm. um, 
oh, I should have looked at this before we started, but I want to say around 147 are licensed. Wow. I think only about 52 are opened currently. I could be, those are, those are older numbers. And so I could be, um, I could be wrong on that, but we've got a, uh, yeah, we've got a, we've got a lot of dispensaries. Um, I'm not sure how many are actually going to get opened. Um, but there was a, uh, there's plenty out there. I do know this, there is a dispensary near every, everybody should be able to get certified pretty conveniently and everybody should be able to find a dispensary near them in the state because we do have them all across the state. Um, I tell people now is the time to go get your card, go get your card, go get your card, go get your card. And, uh, and then I would take, why is that? Because, um, we've had initially people were not getting cards because there was a vast amount of confusion. (laughs) You know, people didn't, people had no idea. A lot of people, strangely enough, didn't even really know, that the program was in swing. Like I would have people come up to me as really as recently as just a few months ago and be like, Hey, you think that medical marijuana thing is going to pass? And I'm like, are are you kidding me right now? Like, yeah, (laughs) I do. And so, and then in addition, once the word started getting out, then people sort of took the position, well, there's really no product yet. I'm not going to go get my card yet. And so that's been remedied. Um, and then there was a drug test that was required that patients get when they went to their physician. The legislature took that out, even though the drug test wasn't required to be assessed or used in determining whether somebody could get certified. It just was in the bill. It was um, so they took it out because it's like it's really meaningless. If, if your doctor wants you to get a drug test for some reason, that's between you and your doctor. Um, but there's no requirement for a drug test that made getting cards easier too. And they also gave the Department of Health some funding to give them more staff to help them get through the 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 patients. And so I say that because now is the time because there were all these holdups. One of the other things that there was a huge misconception about is that you know they're going to come take your guns if you get a a patient card. That is an absolute untruth. 100%. There couldn't be a bigger lie <laughs> out there. It is not true. Nobody is coming to get your guns if you get a medical marijuana card. Number one, Mississippi in the Cannabis Act built in protection for gun owners. There is a provision in there that says you absolutely cannot discriminate against a medical marijuana card holder in Mississippi. And that includes for gun purchases, gun possession, gun ownership, whatever you want to call it. Okay. The also part of that is there is no there is no basis in federal law. Nobody is coming to get your guns from the federal government either. Where the confusion came in was early on with Initiative 65, the opposition read a little piece of the 1962 Gun Act, which requires that if you go buy a gun from certain vendors, for example, uh, if I went to Walmart to buy a gun, they're going to give me a piece of paper that asks a question on there about whether, and I don't have the language in front of me. I didn't, I, I didn't think I was going to get this far into it, but I can't help it because it's, it's, uh, it is meaningful to me. But there's a question in there that says, you know, if you use, if you, if you use uh, illegal drugs or um, blah, 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 it, it requires that you answer that. Now, the only thing that that impacts is your ability at that particular moment to purchase that gun from that vendor if you answer yes. So there is confusion about what that means, but no one is coming to get the guns you already own. The one thing that this language impacts is your ability to buy a gun under federal law from certain vendors. If I want to buy you, if you said to me, hey, Kelly, I have a gun I want to sell you. 
has no implication on that. I can buy I can buy that gun from you all day, and it has absolutely no implication on what I possess right now. And in addition to that, on the federal government level, there's been three lawsuits, one out of Florida, where the Department of Agriculture sued the Department of Justice uh, a few years ago over over this language. That particular case was dismissed. However, since the and, and appealed, and I'm, I haven't, I've got to look to see where that landed. In addition to that, since that time, we have cases come out of Texas and Oklahoma where federal judges have both said on one of those cases was a civil case, the other was a criminal case. Both of these federal judges have said this language is unconstitutional and violates the Second Amendment. So we now have a federal opinion. And now we're in split districts, so who knows where that's going to go. But Texas in particular is in the Fifth Circuit. And so I would be curious to know if, it, if the Department of Justice appeals that and we end up. So, But the point is, is we have got much, much, much ado about nothing, frankly. It does impact a person's right, a person's, opera, I want to say right, well, I guess it is right, to buy a gun from certain vendors, but not all vendors. And it certainly has no effect on anybody's right to possess a gun. Yeah. yeah, so that's that's the first time I've heard that, so I didn't have any knowledge of that. How will this work from a employer's perspective? So say, you know, traditionally in Mississippi, there's, uh, you know, you can have rules in place that we drug test employees. If uh, someone has a medical marijuana card, how does that work if if an employee fails a drug test? So, so there is a uh, protection built into the bill for employers. Mm-hmm. Um, there's nothing that an employer, so it really doesn't work any differently than any other drug test. There's nothing in the bill that would prevent an employer from firing an employee if they failed a drug test, whether it be for marijuana or anything else. In other words, the card doesn't protect the employee in that capacity. You know, we see as a, I think as a cultural thing, we see in companies uh, across the, the across the country who have pulled back on specifically drug testing for marijuana. But in Mississippi, as it relates to medical marijuana, there's nothing in the bill that requires a company to um, to refrain from firing somebody for a, dr- a, a failed drug test, whether it's whether they have a card or they don't have a card. And, and we may see some clarification going on that. Um, as we go forward, there's a couple interesting cases coming out of Pennsylvania where um, they, I think they were worker comp, workers comp issues where they have ruled that um, those, those employees did have to be reimbursed for their medical, for their medical marijuana treatments and use. So interesting things happening, happening all over the country as we see, you know, medical marijuana and, and or recreational use, whatever. I mean, we're now, there's only a, just a few states that don't have some sort, some form of a legal cannabis program. I think probably, you know, 10 or 11, perhaps. I've always had the question with uh, the medical marijuana, how does it work? So obviously, if you're drinking and driving, right. you're over the limit, you know, you're going to get a DUI. Yeah. And from what I understand, if you can get a DUI from being under the influence of marijuana if you're driving, is that correct? Oh, absolutely. So how does that work, though, as far as, because marijuana stays in your system it does. long after it's probably impedes you. Sure. So oh, yeah, say, I mean, for instance, you're in a car accident and unfortunately somebody dies in that accident and yeah. they do a blood test on you and you're, you haven't smoked in three days. Right. But it's still in your system. Mm-hmm. How would that play out in court? How do you? How would you prove? Okay, I wasn't actually under the influence when this happened, 
And, you know, what type of implications would that be, I guess, moving forward if you found yourself in that situation? Sure. Well, the first question, how would that play out? You would the, uh, It would play out with a very competent lawyer. <laughs> so, um, that's the first thing. A lot of that, um, so the, the scenario that you just brought up, is going to is going to be fact intensive. So, for example, that that would play out in a courtroom if it went that far. That would play out with a with a very good, a very creative, and very competent lawyer having enough evidence to show that you weren't impaired at that moment. Now, is that a gray area and a tough area right now? Absolutely. Because impairment is impairment. So, you know, and that was one of the things I have some friends in law enforcement that were like, oh my gosh, what are we going to do? You know, if we, you know, and I'm like, well, impairment is still impairment. <laughs> like if I take a, if I take a Xanax right. or, a, you know, a couple of Xanax, whatever, and I could get in my car and drive and I get stopped because I'm reckless or whatever, or because I'm driving impaired, I'm going to get a DUI because I'm impaired. If I go get drunk and get in my car and drive, I could get a DUI because I'm driving impaired. It is the same thing. There's nothing about a medical marijuana card that prevents law enforcement from enforcing DUI laws for driving while you're impaired. Now, it, it perhaps creates, well, I know it does, it, 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 can be, it can create a rebuttable presumption or a defense to possession, but even then you still have to show, I have my card, I have the allowable amount that I'm supposed to have, and I have it packaged or carried possessed in the in a in the legal manner that I'm allowed to have it. But as far as DUI, impairment is impairment and there will be challenges about how people how the government shows and proves impairment. But see, I don't even think that's it. There's never been a challenge really for the government to show impairment. The challenge comes for defense attorneys to figure out how we show that they weren't impaired. Even though you have a positive drug test for marijuana, how do you show that, even though it's not the burden? I mean, obviously, that's basic 101. Everybody's going to be like, oh, my God, she's ridiculous. She's a lawyer, and she doesn't even understand the burden. I understand the burden of proof is on the state. I'm just saying that's, that's and theoretically, that's how it is. In practice, any lawyer knows that you better be you better be prepared. Not only does the state need to show their case, but you've got to be prepared to show why your client wasn't impaired and how. And that could be anything from facts of how the stop went. It could be science behind blood work or urine work. It could be a number of things that I don't know. I mean, even even perhaps you could even take a hair follicle and say, you know, a fingernail or or something like that, that, um, that as we go down this road, there will be scientists and other, you know, geniuses that come up with ways to test for um, impairment as we get down the road with cannabis. I don't know when that will be, but I know it will happen. Some good info there. Um, Tell us a little bit about what do you see going forward, you know, for the state as far as positive things we're looking at. You know, I'm hoping that this will probably or should help crime. Mm -hmm. Should, you know, economically, there there will be some positives there too. Tell us a little bit about those two things. Yeah. So, um, so to date, uh, we've are, Mississippi has already seen over $11 million from um, fees from uh, the business industry. So we've already gotten a boom right off, right off the bat for that. And I think, um, I think the other part, I think uh, from an economical standpoint, we've, um, we can only, you know, this will be good for everybody. It'll be good for businesses 
It'll be good for communities. It'll be good for, I mean, all of the infrastructure needs that these that these funds can address. So I think from an economic standpoint, it brings jobs. I mean, we we alone, you know, we'll, are planning on bringing about 90 jobs. So we, uh, we currently have about 18 employees. We just held a job fair slash work permit assistant, assistance event on Saturday. We had a phenomenal turnout. We signed up 50 people, 50 people for that filled out job applications and 50 people that we got their work permit applied for and we paid for their work permit. We paid for the notary. We had the fingerprint there. We did it all. And so uh, super excited about that. So from a bringing job standpoint, yeah, I think this is going to change a lot of things for Mississippi from the standpoint of we need that money for infrastructure. We need people to be able to make a living wage and to take care of their families. And so I think the industry is going to be positive in that regard. And I think also, too, as far as a, a, the criminal stuff, yeah, you know, there there is a, early on the opposition was saying that, oh, well, there's going to be, you know, it's just going to be crime and weed's going to be everywhere. Well, you know, hey, guess what? Weed's already everywhere. And, uh, and so what we'll do by regulate, legalizing it and regulating it, Studies show that in other states where they have legalized uh, marijuana, that the the teen and child use goes down, um, and so and and then that stands to reason because it's no longer it's it's the the more you the more you broaden the legal market, the more you suffocate the black market, and so and the smaller you make the black market, the less accessible it is to children because it's you can't a child can't go in a dispensary. They can't go, you know, now there are, there are new worries and I'll, I'll be a hundred percent candid about what the, what maybe a negative would be in that regard. And that is making sure that people lock up their, their medicine, make sure they lock up their cannabis. You know, you do hear, you do, we do hear reports about children accessing gummies and things like that. And those are very, they can be very potent. Um, they can be long lasting and it could be a very scary experience for somebody who, uh, certainly a child and somebody who didn't know what they were, what they were getting into. So that's where we really need to focus our, our, when we talk about safety is in, in Kelly's green in particular, we have all kinds of policies and protocols, um, in place to prevent diversion and to make sure that we educate people on, Hey, this is medicine and Hey, you need to keep it locked up and away from your child or your children or from anybody else that could access it. And we have all kinds of suggestions for people who want to do that. We have lock boxes. We have other things that, you know, people should just be directions that people should be following and just be aware of, hey, you know what? Just remember, you need to keep this locked up. You need to keep it safe where people can't get to it like your children or whomever. Well, and we know from a standpoint, obviously, this, you know, health wise, people with chronic pain. And things like that, this could be a positive for them, um, be able to help, you know, someone that suffered for a long time. What do we see, though, obviously, like, you know, I, I'm not I'm not comparing smoking cigarettes, but we know sure. that if you smoke a cigarette that you run a risk of lung cancer at some right. point with uh, cannabis. Are there any negative side effects that people should be aware of? Uh, I mean, yeah, I, I'm not, I, I would be, I think it would be ridiculous, uh, ridiculously naive for me to sit here and say, absolutely not. It's perfect. <laughs> it's the yeah. perfect drug for everybody. <laughs> so yeah, there, there, there are, um, number one, you know, when you talk about, are there, when we talk about smoking, so I, I, I am not an expert on, or a scientist or a doctor, um, but I do know that some of the problems come from smoking or a lot of the additives that when people in the, that happen in the manufacturing process right. for cigarettes, right? So I will tell you that the, the manufacturing process 
for cannabis, at least at this day and age, and I can't imagine that it will ever change, is a much cleaner process. We are about um, clean medicine. It, it's, it is safety. If we're asking people to put something in their body, um, and, and all of our product goes through testing, whether it's uh, heavy metals or pesticides or anything you could think of, um, it's going to be tested, not, not just for potency um, and terpenes and things like that, but also for, um, for anything that could in- impact somebody's body negatively. So we don't have the additives that the tobacco industry uses. Now, that being said, again, you are smoking something, so it's going to impact your lungs. I'm not going to sit here and say it's not. That would be ridiculous. And that's why if people don't want to smoke, there are other options as it relates to topicals, um, that you would rub on your skin. Um, and one of the, I want to mention this because this is so huge. You don't have to have a medical marijuana card to go into a dispensary and buy a topical. The legislature changed that this year as well. So you own, you do have to be 21 or older, but you don't have to have a medical marijuana card if you want to go try a THC topical. You can do that. You can just walk into a dispensary. They just have to have it in a separate, uh, separate space. Yeah. Well, Kelly. Yeah. Thank you for coming on today. Um, <laughs> It's uh, great to hear uh, about the medical marijuana market, what y'all are doing for Mississippi, and we appreciate it. Um, Now we're to our bourbon tasting for the end here, Dakota. Yeah. We'll talk a little bit about a substance that used to be illegal in Mississippi. (laughs) It did. It did. And they have repealed that. Um, Finally. Rebel. It's a cool bottle. I'm sure you're a fan as a Rebel fan. Yeah. That's probably where Adam purchased it. So Probably. I like it. What did you give it? I gave it a eight two. Eight two. That's what I thought. I'm gonna go eight flat. Eight flat. Eight flat. So, so what? What's that quick math there, Tyler? Eight one. We eight did one it today. So fantastic, fantastic. So there you have it. Eight one on the Rebel Kentucky Straight Bourbon Whiskey. Kelly, again, thank you so much for coming on today. And uh, just real quick, I'd love to get what what is some feedback that you've gotten? Some real feel good stories of. Just like two, maybe real quick, right? Of, hey, this, my dad was suffering for 30 years and yeah. you have helped him regain his ability to to be present and to be like a, a father again, almost in, a, in their home or something, or my mom or my yeah. brother or sister, or, you know, what have you. Absolutely. No. And we have had some great feedback. So, um, you know, uh, one, one, one person in particular that stands out was someone who had, uh, um, had, uh, was a cancer, um, and they were a cancer, somebody who is suffering with cancer and, um, and they were very sick at their stomach, unable to eat, uh, really unable to eat and, um, or keep anything down. And, um, cannabis helped them with that. Uh, they were able to live with cancer. I mean, we hear about living with cancer now. So such a different perspective than say 40 years ago when it was just a death sentence, but now people live with cancer and they get treatment and they, you know, go on. And so, um, but, but, uh, they're, they were able to, to, uh, to eat and to gain weight. And I think that's important. We hear that over and over again, people with, even with HIV that have, you know, just that the wasting away syndrome that helps a lot with uh, as well. And so, yeah, I think that's I think that's just a great quality of life thing that we know that people suffer with conditions, but life goes on, and um, cannabis can go a great way to give quality of life. Whether you're suffering from a debilitating condition that will get better, or whether you're going into a phase of, of maybe it, it's a hospice phase, I don't know. You know, whatever the case may be, cannabis is about quality of life, and that's what we see with people. And in in our, you know, I want to go back to super fast. 
can you use too much cannabis or the wrong strain or the wrong potency? Absolutely. And that's why it's so important to educate yourself on what's best for you. And you can do that as you go into dispensaries. For example, we'll have educational pieces and people there to educate, to say, hey, you know, maybe this maybe this edible may be a great product for you or this gummy may be a great product for you. But how about instead of breaking it in half, how about you're probably best served at this potency level to try an eighth of it or even a sixteenth of it and see how it affects you, and work your way to figure out what works best for each person. Well, great. Yeah. Well, if someone wants to access information from y'all about y'all or about medical marijuana in general, how how should they do that? So they can, um, they can of course, follow us on our social media, uh, Kelly's Green. I think it's Kelly's Green, Inc., uh, on Facebook and Instagram. Of course, you can visit our website, www.kellysgreen.org. Then there are some great information pieces out there. Um, 3MA is a great source of information, and that's the Mississippi Medical Marijuana Association. There is the Mississippi Cannabis Patients Alliance. They have a great website with lots of information uh, for patients in particular. Uh, so yeah, there's just uh, there's a great uh, wealth of knowledge out there. You, uh, at any of those places. Great. Well, again, thanks for coming on today. Good to do another recording, Dakota. Always and good to see you, Tyler. Thank, our, <laughs> thank you to all our listeners for listening. And guys, if you would, just give us a like on social or we would appreciate a rating on Spotify or Apple or however you listen. Thanks. See you next time. Thanks. Hope you guys enjoyed this episode. If you have any feedback or would like to be featured, reach out to us at bourbonandbusinesspodcast at gmail.com. Or find us on Instagram at Bourbon and Business Podcast. Thanks again for listening. Follow us for more content and info on the next episode.